And this is Jacob. And you're listening to the Best Worst Podcast. Podcast. Uh, we don't know what episode I have no this is. So it's been a it's been a long time between drinks. Yeah. Um, I'm finishing off my uh, Garage Project Venusian Pale Ale. You're on the I'm on um, the Belvini Doublewood, twelve years. Yeah, mm. and which I'll be moving to at Lovely some point. Lovely and smooth. Um, but we got kind of. I mean, to say we fell into a rut is a bit mean, but we kind of fell into a rut. Went into a pattern, maybe a yeah, pattern, a, a pattern, a pattern of, yeah, a pattern of kind of festivalish rundowns, mm. end of year, start of year, what's yeah, happening, yeah. Um, and we tried that that new releases thing, but that can be a bit tricky to yeah. kind of do it in a timely basis. So we we came up with this other idea. Um, yeah, we thought we'd um, have a look at certain filmmakers that we were quite keen that had a reasonable body of work or just an interesting body of work. Um, so we happened upon an obvious one just because I think we... Well, my idea was um, ah, because I... Steven Soderbergh has been somebody who I've followed since this, pretty much the very beginning of the, his career, his first feature anyway. Ah. Um, I didn't watch 90215, the live concert or whatever, <laughs> which he yeah, produced before that. But um, he's had his little retirement and he's coming back in... Um, July or August with uh, Logan Lucky, which is why do people, why do people retire? <laughs> well, why don't they just say I'm just going to take a hiatus? We, uh, he, he had given up on cinema, but yeah. um, now he's come back, and we'll, we can discuss that a bit yeah. more when we get to there. But I like the idea instead of trying to key off something that's an immediate release, but mm. something that's maybe you know a little bit farther in advance that kind of moves at the same time cycle that we do, so that yeah. people who. You know, and I think, you know, I certainly haven't seen all of Soderbergh's features. I know that you haven't. No, but I mean, I, I've, done a, a I've done a good bash. Um, I've probably, and if, you, and if yeah. you look at him sort of outside just as directing, um, if you look at his, his editing oh work, his God. camera work, his production, his writing, his executive production and writing, then yeah. he covers a lot of stuff, a lot of bases. Yeah, I, um, I've got a book over here called Getting Away With It, which he wrote in um, 1997, which is part of Diary of that year. And we'll talk about why that year yeah. was kind of pivotal for him. Yeah. But, you know, he mentioned. Like, oh yeah, I rewrote the Night Watch script, and then the director butchered it, and I rewrote the Mimic script, and then Del Toro did his thing with it, and it's just, mm. and he, he wrote this um, script for Henry Selleck that never got produced. Oh yes, yes. Um, Toots in the Upside Down House, and you know he did all this stuff, and it was just like one year while he was releasing <laughs> two movies, and then getting a um, gig for Out of Sight, and then producing a play in Louisiana for a month and directing that. And um, he's. he's He's so restless and busy, and then, he's America's you know, yeah. um, Mika. <laughs> kind of, and and I think that there's certainly an element of the pro- the productivity, and also, yeah. um, well, I, I think one of the things that's different and what makes him an interesting choice to start this off is that um, he really and very intentionally defies having an easy brand you know mm. you look at the yeah the youtube videos of wes anderson and quentin tarantino and, yeah they've and got you see these really consistent visual motifs. Yeah. yeah and i think i think in some ways he has more academic concerns that you see mm. but less um he's certainly style. not yeah, yeah certainly he uh, i think i think if anything the choice is more about that he predetermines a style for his film and then rigorously sticks to that Sometimes for better, not always, but it can be often quite an academic. Yeah. yeah. Well, with one thing. of the things, having sort of watched through a few more of the films that I haven't seen over the last little mm. while, some old ones, some newer ones, and thinking about the the lot that I have seen. I mean, there are plenty that I love, and plenty that, and a few that I'm, well, nothing that I hate, but a few that I'm not so keen on. But I think a consistent thread for me might be that he there seems to be a slight 
distance or coldness in a lot of his filmmaking style whereas other people kind of get this sense of real kind of intimacy with mm. their characters and with their subject matter he has a lot of fun he does some interesting stuff he, he investigates stuff but there seems to always be a, a, a sense of distance except maybe in um, Schizopolis which yeah, is we'll such a bizarre to. film. But I, yeah. yeah, so what, what I propose is I, I kind of have five phases of Soderbergh's career pre-retirement mm. theory, and my mm. theory was that we go through each phase and, and kind of hone in on a film from each one. Yeah. Um, there's I think, I think anyone looking at his career could probably divide it up in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And I've made what are probably some non-canonical choices. I guess what I consider phase one is starts on the dais at... Khan in, I think, 1989, when he won the Palme d'Or for Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Um, A film that I had shamefully not seen until I borrowed your copy of it. And conversely, I saw in the theater, so we'll have very different experiences. Um, I'll just do a pressy around this stuff, and then we'll go back and dive into that. But just an interesting aside, he won that year over Do the Right Thing. Which to me seems criminal. And and, um, Spike Lee agreed on that. Wim Wenders, or Wim Wenders, excuse me, was the um, judge and and made some comments about the endorsement of violence in that, to which apparently Spike Lee made some comments about having a Louisville slugger with his name on it. Um, (laughs) But they later... um, Buried uh, Soderbergh and Lee, at least, buried the fence. In part, I was reading something about the stocks that Soderbergh used on the underneath, and when he saw what Spike Lee saw what was happening with him, he got in touch with Soderbergh and wound up using them for Crooklyn. And many, many years later, Soderbergh wound up being an executive producer on The Sweet Blood of Jesus, which came out in 2014. Oh, right. So it took a while to reproach Pro- that, yeah. but, but it does kind of point to that Soderbergh seems to have his hands in like almost everybody's career in, yeah. in, from a very early point. Off the back of Sex, Lies, and Videotape, he did um, Kafka, which was written by uh, Lem Dobbs. Mm. And then, so I've seen, yeah. I haven't seen that one, but I've seen his subsequent collaborations with Lem Dobbs, which yeah. he three or four other ones? Three, uh, three? Two. I'm not, uh, there's two that I can the think Limey of. And, yeah, and Haywire. Right? Haywire. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then also, then there's a coming-of-age story called The King of the Hill. Uh-huh, which, yeah. Have you missed that one? Yeah, I haven't seen that. Oh, it's a coming-of-age story. You'd love it. Yeah, um, probably and, would. and this was kind of him trying to make his mark in the studio system, and he did King of the Hill, and then The Underneath, which is a remake of um, Crisscross, a universal film noir thriller. And, okay. um, and those were kind of to diminishing returns, you know? Mm. They were all very different films, and at the same time, he was also doing some stuff on a show called Lost Angels and the underneath famously he kind of it, very shortly after it came out pretty much disowned and kind of felt like he'd retreated into formalism but just to go back to the top Sex, Lies, and Videotape this was the first I would say film for adults that I'd ever seen oh, which yeah. isn't to say it's the first R-rated film because I'd seen Revenge of the Nerds and I'd seen yeah. so, you know, Porky's and some you know I can't remember when Total Recall came out, but, you know, some stuff kind of yeah. running man, and those s- kinds Six of Lies, things. having just seen it, like, just seen it for the yeah, first yeah. time, it's not, like, I, I expected it to be more explicit, and it wasn't, really. No, well, that was the, so some of the disappointed at the time, you know, I mean, yeah. is that it's, you know, Andy McDowell talking to her therapist about yeah. garbage, and, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, and J- James Spader um, interviewing women about sex, sex. but, you know, yeah, you know, um, you know, Soderbergh's never, you know, demonstrated over a long career that very rarely going to get particularly steamy yeah, yeah. on screen. And uh, it starts there. But I was just, I just remember being struck from the very opening credits, which are just a road going by. Yeah, yeah. And that was something. Coming up. And yeah. yeah. And there's this economy of means in these late 80s, early 90s indies that I think like 
going back and seeing them now, mm. it's hard to be impressed by. Yeah. Um, I, what, something like Clerks comes to mind is a, yeah. the, sort of the exemplar of yeah, yeah. anyone coming to that for the first time in 2017 is going to be like, so what? Yeah, you, yeah, you're fucking kidding me. People cared about this, yeah. but but it was but, yeah coming out yeah. of coming out of the high concept '80s blockbustery everything's big scale mm. story, big scale kind of feeling. It's and big yeah big sheen a very yeah. you know I mean you go go back and watch '80s movies and even into the '90s you just watched um, Revenge the Tony Scott film. Oh, you know right. it's yeah. like it's like wow yeah that's what all films looked like then, yeah you know it's even like the, even like the, 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 the rom coms and, and the, like you know the Michael J Fox films from the '80s. Bright Lights, Big City, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, they do have that kind of polished budget feel, you know? Yeah, it's like, it's like they may not, they feel like simultaneously they haven't been made for much money, yeah. but they made sure that like all the, the lights mo- are yeah, exactly yeah. in the quote-unquote right place. Yeah. And that's something you see Soderbergh really fight against in yeah. his career. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to talk objectively about Sex, Lies, and Videotape because I've seen it a few times over the year and it meant so much to me oh, and I feel like the farther I get from it things that seem quite profound at the time like the very last scene um, mm. Andy McDowell goes and sits down next to James Spader and I, I forget the exact line but James Spader says it looks like it's going to rain Yeah, and Andy McDowell says it is raining and you know at the time I was like Whoa! Yeah, you know this is really deep and meaningful, and that was an improv on set. Yeah, um, I have the sex lies in videotape diary somewhere. Oh, yeah. But so did it? Did it work for you? Did it not work for you? It worked, but it came loaded with a lot of expectation mm. because it was one of the sort of like quintessential turning points of the indie film mm. um, renaissance in the nineties that you kind of keep hearing about. You know, sex lies in videotape. There was early slacker. And um, Link Later, yeah, um, those films that kind of turned over the kind of the high budget sort of thing and sort of mm. had its own take, but going back sort of more towards the the independence of the seventies. Yeah, it, it was. It, I guess coming at it from this end of things, it did look like a lot of that stuff had been done, and so I wasn't as I wasn't as impressed as I probably would have been at the time. Mm. Like there were other films from the era that I did see that I do remember feeling quite excited about. Um, but that you saw in the era, yeah, know? yeah. yeah. Oh, did um, you see Hal Hartley's films at the time? I'm not sure that I did. Trust and Simple Men uh, and no, things like that. No. Okay, but yeah, um, but it was it holds up as a, as a very very good drama. I mean, some of it's kind of it almost feels like there's too much improvisation in parts of it. Like hmm. um, for me, like the script, Spader and McDowell, some of their interactions are a bit stilted, hmm. um, and I wouldn't call them the greatest improvisers in the world. <laughs> and I'm. There's, I mean, there's a certain. Will we come back to um, certain, McDowell and Magic Mike? Yeah, <laughs> there's a certain rawness in, in in it that is that is good, but yeah, it kind of goes hand in hand with feeling a bit sloppy at times as well. Yeah, but the filmmaking is pretty pretty interesting, and and it holds up as a really interesting film and an interesting look at at identity. I mean, the whole kind of sex lies and videotape, which kind of has this whole. Whoa! What's this about? Is yeah. it like I, 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 the, the book it, makes I, it very clear that wasn't the title. I think there were all sorts of crazy titles. Like oh, one right. was gonna, actually going to be like the runtime of the film or something. Oh, right. <laughs> um, and everyone was worried about calling it sex lies and videotape because they were worried people would think it was shot on videotape. Yeah, yeah. And things like that. It's very, very. Uh, I mean, it makes yeah. sense in the context of the film, and yeah, particularly with James Spader's character mm-hmm. and his issues. But I mean, it's a lot about figuring out who you are and figuring out 
what it is you want from life. You do get a sort of a, a sense that um, Soderbergh it was coming from perhaps a slightly cynical space. Well, there's something that, I mean, just thinking back on the film, like a lot of the scenes I remember are characters alone, like James Spader getting yeah. changed in the restroom or Peter Gallagher at his desk, like spinning his yeah. wedding ring. And I think there is a constant recurrence of the solitary man, uh, the, you know, mm. the man alone yeah. in Soderbergh's films throughout so many of them and yeah um and he wrote a lot of these early ones and he doesn't he hasn't written a lot his films for a long time now i think i think he got burned out on some of the script doctoring and other things yeah. and also just you know was developing so many projects like you know, mm. as with someone like Mike. i mean mm. back back in this phase he did four films in eight years i think by the end he was doing like eight films in four years yeah, <laughs> yeah. and throwing in a tv series or whatever plus mm-hmm. producing six films on the side but i but i think you know there, even if you aren't the writer and it's important it's important to mention also soderbergh never takes a possessory credit on his films no there's ne- there's never a film by steven soderbergh. soderbergh no and often he changes his name in credits as yeah, well yeah well that's that's the thing for somebody who often you know, is DP Peter Andrews and editor Marianne you, Bernard, yeah. and and somebody who photographs, directs, and edits their own film could probably make a better argument for a possessory credit than most. Mm. And it's, I, I think it's endemic that he chooses not to take it, and kind of, yeah, a sense of the kind of you know community he builds through his films. And there is a lot of that. You know, there are people that he he keeps coming back to and yeah. back to. And Peter, you know, Peter Gallagher bookends this era because he is the lead in the underneath. And Andy McDowell comes back, and you know yeah. it's. Um, um, but and, yeah, and it, he does recur. Yeah. He does, yeah, he does continue to collaborate with the same people over and over again, which is kind of cool. I mean, that's, yeah. that's not unusual, I guess. But your Six Lies as a first film is a very good film, and it's pretty interesting, and it's and it's very of its moment and pivotal yeah. in its moment, which is, I guess, telling. Um, it feels like the sort of thing that I couldn't really push on people today, and like, yeah, you know, it feels like. Like, I don't know if you saw that thing I was saying about the um, Demi movie, but, like, the oh, difference yeah. between cinephile pleasures and, you yeah, know, yeah. real pleasures, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. And it's just, like... And um, and I think um, my wife sometimes, too, tends to be, like, more, like, you know, is this actually, like, enjoyable, enjoyable as a thing? Or, you you know, and, yeah. I, and I do get enjoyment out of, like, the history and the things like that. And, and certainly with the movie, like, Sex Lies that burned in at a certain mm. time, it's going to be electric for me in a way... That overcomes maybe some of the clumsiness of dramaturgy. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that's I think that that's the thing is it maybe the dramaturgy is a little overdetermined in a way. Yeah, yeah. It's, I I realize that's a really vague thing to kind of describe, and I, I don't have my um, hand on it close enough to mm. remember. But that's yeah. I mean, the movie that I'd love to revisit is Kafka because I haven't seen it since on videotape in nineteen. Yeah, I'd be very keen to see that. And, um, who, who wrote that? Was Lem Dobbs. Lem Dobbs. So, so yeah. Lem Dobbs wrote that. That was his first collaboration with. Sophie. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, and uh, as he says on the Limey um, uh, commentary track, the famously combative Limey commentary track, <laughs> you got that one wrong. You'll get this one wrong. Maybe you'll get the next one right. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, but it, I think it was. Um, I mean, you see, you look at this pattern and, and Soderbergh in the diaries and getting away with it says quite clearly, you know, I'm trying to set a whole like, you know, that I'm not a brand. You yeah, know, yeah. That, that I'm not the guy that does this or yeah. does that. So, yeah, so at the tail end of that, you get this period where he's done the underneath and is kind of fed up and does these two little small films that he pre sells to Fox Lorber. One is um, 
Grey's Anatomy, which is oh, Spalding yeah, yeah. Grey, which I haven't seen. It somehow slipped through my radar yeah, this I whole seen that either. time. Um, and the other is Schizopolis, which she shoots uh, with yes. a five-person crew. Interestingly, I just read that um, Elmo Oxygen um, oh, yeah. is also the grip on the film, and at that point had <laughs> been had been on every Soderbergh film as a grip, uh, but is also an actor and continues to be in, like, he's in a lot of big Hollywood things to this day. Oh, he really? was in Loving, he was in, you know, he's just one of these guys that's hovering around the margins. And and I, I, I'm really sympathetic to it, because it is about, like, kind of taking this, you know, big moment, and then you go into the world of Hollywood, and you get ground down, and you go back, and you're like, okay, what do I care about? And... You know, he hadn't got paid since, like, 1994, so he's doing these cell jobs on getting these script uh, editing things at the time and getting more and more burned out on writing, but Mm. also doing what's probably, in some ways, his most intensely personal film, although, interestingly, at the time, he denied it a lot. Um, You know, in in his diaries at the time, he's like, everybody says it's personal, but I don't see that, but... um, (laughs) But also, I was reading an interview with him several years later, which says, hey, so you met your first wife, Betsy Brantley, on Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and you were in the proce- she was in the process of becoming your ex-wife while you made Schizopolis, and you played her husband on screen <laughs> for this relationship where she's having an affair on you with, with the- another character <laughs> played by <laughs> you. <laughs> Let's just take a moment to acknowledge how singularly crazy schizopolis is in anyone's filmography oh yeah it's it's it, it plays like this bizarrely low budget and like when, when you first put it on i was like is this some kind of mondo mics <laughs> weird sketch sort of yeah because yeah. it, it, it starts off almost like like a sketch based surreal and monty python-esque piece and then you realize that it's it, to some degree it's going in cycles with mm. various groups of characters that then Overlap mm. at times, and some of them don't. Like, yeah, dude on the bike with no pants <laughs> keeps appearing, but it doesn't appear to cross over with any of the rest yeah. of them. There's but, um, there's the tribute to Richard Lester who did um, Hard Day's Night and yeah. and Petulia and the Knack and things like that. And he mentioned Louis Bunuel, but it, I feel like it's kind of somebody who admires those films, but for maybe people like that, some of the crazy it comes a bit organically, mm. and maybe with Soderbergh it comes a bit more. Mm. conceptually mm. and there's something really interesting and exciting about that tension in yeah. Schizopolis that has him skating you know just this edge of complete mm. risability yeah. and amateurishness you know I mean there's that one shot where um, the actor who plays Elmo Oxygen uh, you know or quits his film to go into another film <laughs> that's going on and the camera pans away while the boom guy is just yeah, yeah, standing there yeah. not sure what to do and um, and this is way before like you know Von yeah. Trier doing like the idiots and yeah. things like this you know yeah, it's certainly I when I saw it I think that that's true that it rides the edge of risability at first I was thinking mm. this is interesting and kind of terrible and but just so whacked out that it's I can't help but look at it um, but then when it slowly kind of when the um, story thread started to sort of um, connect a bit more and make a little more sense, as much sense as it was going to make it actually became quite a profound piece for me I, I, I finished that just going mm. this is an amazing, like for me it read as like, without any sort of sense of commentary around it, it read as an incredibly personal piece about figuring out who you are and where your life is at and yeah. 
what's actually real, what's actually important. Well, and just sort of this savage take on yeah. rituals and convention and yeah. um, even the defiance of ritual and convention, convention yeah. being, you know, kind of a performance in and of itself. There's the bit where Elmo Oxygen is like showing how crazy he is yeah. and he's going tearing mattresses off, or tags <laughs> off mattresses. <laughs> and and that's, that self-doubt is something that... Um, comes up a lot in mm. Soderbergh writing and mm. certainly through the getting away with it that I've mentioned and a lot mm. of the other things that he's talked about. And I think, I think it's one of the things that I think he's always questioning and I think he's always experimenting. Um, and I think that's what makes each film sort of a new venture in and mm. of itself and that can sometimes be an exciting one or a not so exciting one. But it's um, it's definitely not just like Oh, do you like Wes Anderson? Yeah. Here's another Wes Anderson with slightly different characters and slightly different setting. Yeah, yeah. You know, and sometimes some are better or and worse because of a color scheme. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's all balanced the same. Or way. there's three aspect ratios. Yeah, yeah. But you know, um, but yeah, you can you could play three Steven Soderbergh films back to back without the credits. Yeah. And reasonable people could think they're by different directors. Yeah. And actually, yeah, I mean, because you go from Schizopolis yeah, he plays to Out of yeah. Sight, but you know, <laughs> yeah, which is literally his next film. Yeah, and um, and I love that film. It's one of my favorites. Oh, really? Films. Um, yeah, I just um, I've watched it like five or six times, and just just the jazziness you're, you're, of it. You're a J Lo fan. I, I thought that J-Lo was a good actress for several years because of that film. And uh-huh. then it only became clear eventually that she was <laughs> a good actress because um, of what Soderbergh had to do on set to yeah. direct her. I got mm-hmm. in, of all random things, I got in a Twitter argument with Drew McWeenie about this one night. And <laughs> he was like, oh, you know, I've, I've interviewed Soderbergh about this. And, you know, he's like, you know, he had to work so hard to get anything out of her. I'm like, but I still think it's a performance that works for that yeah, character. Yeah, it works for the But, character. you know, but also, like, wall-to-wall in that movie, you know, you've got Don Cheadle, you've got Vin mm. Rames, you've yeah. got, you know, Dennis Farina and no, I mean, the, Michael Keaton and Albert Brooks. And, there's, you know. I mean, there's good actors and there's reasonable characters. It's just it's such a conventional kind of criminal, like that typical Clooney, slightly urbane criminal. Yeah. You know, with a little bit of a code. He's not violent. But that but, was also... That was also the film that created it that, that thing. Character, so if yeah. you come to it late, like yeah. if you come to it after, after Ocean's Eleven, I mean, this gets in the whole thing of like, if you watch things like chronologically, you get the excitement of seeing the development. Yeah. And you get the excitement of seeing Out of Sight in the theater. Yeah. And being like, oh, this is actually George Clooney not being the guy he is on ER. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And developing this new, yeah, this new thing persona. that he eventually yeah. becomes this kind of smarmy thing that he... You know, hauls yeah. out for a bunch of different performances in yeah. Three Oceans films and so on. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, um, yeah. So there, um, probably was a bit of that as well because I did just catch it again in the last couple of weeks. Interesting. So that was your first time. Yeah. 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 Did you like the score at least? Uh, um, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I guess I, I I have a fondness for like seventies like heist say, crime I, films. I, I, I feel like there's a lot of that. It's not that I don't like any of these things. I, I enjoyed all of them, but just mm. enjoyed them fine. You know, they, yeah, were, yeah. they were fine. I'd probably happily watch them again with someone else, but I wouldn't go out of my way to watch it again. We actually... Whereas, um, uh, go ahead. The Limey. Oh, yeah. That was a, that was a cut above for me. I was going to say we put on Out of Sight two Christmases ago at uh, my wife's family's house, and yeah. it wound up pleasing the whole family. Um, the, I, I have to confess as well, like Out of Sight being partially shot in Detroit probably oh, yeah. is a um, soft spot for me. But everybody 
enjoyed it. Um, whereas I certainly don't think everyone would enjoy the limey, but um, I think uh, it, is, that, it is. It is. That came you know, a lot of build up for me as well because mm-hmm. everyone references the limey at points, and I just yeah. I just presumed it was like another sort of more conventional sort of heist hitman on the lamb sort of right. crime thriller. But it's far more experimental than I expected. His um his tagline in the book is um. Get Carter is um, directed by Alain Rene, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and, and just the repetitions and the mm. mesmeric um, Cliff, Cliff Martinez score that mm. works through it. That was um, a surprise seeing Cliff Martinez in, in the score, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, Nick, this is pretty- <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's the thing. He has a long storied uh, history with Soderbergh before Nick Winding yeah. Refn got his hands on him. I still don't know if I, I probably have seen it in other films, but I don't remember it as strongly from other films. That he has continuous series of dialogue, but cuts the characters to different times and spaces mm. throughout that dialogue, mm. and so you're getting these different visual images over exactly over one continuous scene, and it works really well. Really interesting. I um, uh, I showed it to uh, Peter Evans, my editor on Jake, oh, yeah. because there's a scene, yeah, the scene uh, where Layden's rehearsing and then yep. going going to meet the ex-girlfriend oh, yes, trying to get yes, back yes. together yeah, with yeah. Um, and it's cutting between I think four different time planes Gente, there yeah. and that was something that I'm like look at this yeah. and it's funny because when I described it everyone's like oh do you mean like the Reservoir dog scene where he's you know rehearsing yeah. the thing and it's going back I'm like no I don't even remember yeah, that scene yeah. and I look, I look back I'm like yeah, but no, no, go watch the limey instead. <laughs> it's funny when you often get accused of ripping off different things than the things you're actually yeah. ripping off. And and Terrence Stamp. Know. Terrence Stamp. Well, that was my introduction to Terrence yeah, Stamp, Yeah, that, that, his, his face is so good. Mm. And, like, it's not comparable, really. Liam Neeson in the Taken films as the, right. as the venging father out in the thing. Terrence Stamp leaves him in the dust. It's like... Yeah, I think Soderbergh has a real eye for casting. Yeah. and um, And also, like... I, I think you see this a lot in the small parts in his films and even mm. some of the crazy decisions that he sometimes makes, like in The Informant, where he's like, we're going to get like 12 comedians to play all yeah, the supporting yeah, roles yeah, yeah, yeah. and we're going to have them well, yeah, play it straight. It's the first, and then have the first time Damon. I've seen Joel McHale in a straight role, I think, and he was really good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But Brings it, a strange in- energy to the part. It's but yeah, it is, it is a very conceptual decision. But I think it's that kind of like there are with certain movies... Um, obviously there's you know certain people in in mm. sort of this era as as he builds on out of sight um, so this would be what I call sort of phase three which is sort of mm. Soderbergh ascending again yeah. where um, you know uh, Luis Guzman Guzman yeah oh, Luis Guzman's interested in the limey yes and, and he's an and resurrecting well. Peter Fonda and he was course. out of sight yeah. as well um, Luis Guzman <clears throat> as a but uh, Carmen Oh yeah, one of the Cubans. True, yeah, and um, Nicky Cat in the limey. Oh, yeah, uh, Nicky Cat. It's yeah, I think they pretty much just let him improvise his entire <laughs> role. But he goes from out of sight to the limey, which is arguably a step down. But then you know already has Aaron Brockovich in the works with Julia mm. Roberts, and then Traffic, and then he gets nominated for both of those and wins his Academy Award for Traffic. Yeah, and then does Ocean's Eleven off the back of it, which is just sort of a, a five for five run. I actually yeah. I haven't been able to bring myself to go back and watch Aaron Brockovich. Um, but my memory of it at the time was like, this is so much better than the film it looks like. Yeah, yeah. And that's um, one thing I noticed coming through this as well, especially with like the limey and traffic, you know, there's this kind of interest in like bringing really idiosyncratic things like his use of color timing with lighting temperatures and things like that. And, you know, in the limey, it's like 
uh, now there's a lot of movies that will be like, oh, we're inside, so we're going to go yep. sickly green yep. to adjust that. In Traffic, of course, he doubles down on this with this yeah. three different thing. And famously, that was the film where he would have been fired. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Have you visited revisited Ocean's Eleven recently? I did do a rewatch of at least the first two. Right. Um, 11 and 12. Right, I haven't, watched 12, I haven't rewatched 12 or 13. I, they're on the lighter side of things, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Comedies, but that's a great ensemble cast, and the writing is clever, it's quick, it's light. And I love how I got Ed, Eddie Jameson from Schizopolis yeah, comes yeah. back in that. Um, but I, having recently rewatched it, I felt like it feels like this film that's trying to be the cutting edge of Slick in 2001. Yeah. And so in certain ways, feels a bit... I mean, dated in its profession of slip, you know, because yeah, yeah. you compare it to a film like Focus, which is a worse film in every other way by yeah. far, but has this sort of facile, like, slipness in, in mm. sort of the way that we now have a vocabulary with handheld movement yeah, yeah. and camera movement and, and score and sound edits yeah. that kind of propel things that maybe, you know, was something Soderbergh was working towards what I think is combining what, you know, this the giant production scale yeah, yeah. with something a bit more, bit more rough and gritty, which, yeah. of course, you know, um, he's been carting into Hollywood and then, you know, Paul Greengrass runs and does yeah. the Bourne films, films and that yeah. kind of completely shifts yeah. what it means. And now if you were to try to do a film that was shot like Secret of My Success or something, yeah, yeah. it would be almost an academic experiment, yeah, really. Yeah. So, yeah, I... I was surprised that it didn't quite hold up for me. But I think the other thing that's interesting about Ocean's Eleven is it's kind of like this peak. Mm. And it's here where it's like you see Soderbergh getting like, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Yeah, yeah. You know, have you seen Full Frontal? No. So Full Frontal's um, what I call the start of Phase 4. It's shot yeah. on DV. Oh, um, it's got an all-star cast. It's set in Hollywood. I only saw it in the theater and I thought it was... Fucking terrible. Oh, yeah. But sort of like... Uh, Nikki Cat's quite good in it, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, but it's kind of like this industry satire sort of piece that doesn't really work. And But it's it almost feels like this kind of bite the hand that feeds you yeah. moment of, of um, kind of expressing his frustration with the hoops that he has to jump through. And I think I'd be, I'd be interested to revisit it because I think in the context of things... Um, you know, maybe it, it, I think it felt like it was supposed to be a Schizopolis kind of throat cleaner, but it was almost yeah. like a purgative yeah. in a way. Yeah. But that kind of starts this, I think, what I consider sort of this period of him struggling with ping-ponging between yeah, yeah. the giant projects that he's getting invited to do and the giant movie stars that he's been encouraged to work with. And then the smaller And then these smaller projects that he wants to do to keep, you know, things going and so just kind of his first that first phase was 1989 to 1985 and that was four films and two episodes of a Showtime series so 2000 to 2009 I'm just going to read this through Full Frontal Solaris K Street which is 10 uh episode TV series set in Washington, D.C. A short film in the Eros, which was a triptych with Antonioni and Wong Kar Wai. Uh, Ocean's 12. We're only yep. to 2004 in this. Bubble, Bubble The yep. Good German, Ocean's 13, Shay 1 and 2, The Girlfriend Experience, and The Informant. And while he's doing all that, 
he's also set up his production shingle with Section 8. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and so that's like Insomnia, Welcome to Collinwood, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Far From Heaven, Criminal, which is by um, Gregory Jacobs, who's his DP, yep. who went on to do Magic Mike XXL. Yep. Um, you know, the jacket, you know, he's, he's got the Siriana, which is, of course, the writer of Traffic, yeah, you know, yeah. and... Um, and a Scanner Darkly, the Linklater film, uh, Michael Clayton. You so know, what did he do on Scanner Darkly? Uh, he, this was a Section 8 production. So oh, section, yeah, yeah. So he, this, yeah. this was the whole kind of like, I'm going to try to work with Hollywood to create a shingle to get these other sort of filmmakers yeah, out yeah. there, you know? Some and he, more unique voices out there. He produced Keen at the time as well, yep. which we've talked about. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's uh, fascinating. So I love that film, and I had no idea that Soderbergh was involved. Well, I just didn't, I didn't look into the credits that well. Yeah. Um, but then on the disc that you had, he's got that... Um, Completely he, he alternate, alternate edit, alternate yeah. cut for it. And then, and then they put it on there. It's fascinating to see that film recut. Um, yeah, well, apparently he did the same thing with her. Okay. Um, so Spike, really? Spike Jones had a 150-minute cut of her and didn't know what to do with it um, because it was too long and it mm. wasn't working. So he sent it to Soderbergh, who just did a you know completely mm. brutal like 85-minute cut of it or something. Yeah. And then it got rid of whole like story plot line. strands yeah. and storylines and all this stuff. And and so he went from there to like the film that we now. Which is more like no. what, 120? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so so yeah, obviously he didn't take yeah. everything on board, but um, obviously helped him to kind of pull it together. Pull it, yeah, and I I think that like what you've seen in the 21st century is this consistent kind of interest in Soderbergh has of like how do I get interesting filmmakers mm. to get their films made and how do I help them with yeah. that yeah. and sticking by these people that he's worked with in various ways over the years or finding other people that you know he can work through but it's i mean you look back at that series of films and i find it's a really mixed body of work oh yeah um very much i love solaris and i would say that it's actually the closest that soderbergh's come to a masterpiece yeah um it it was yeah it was it was strange i I come as a tarkovsky lover and so i approached that with a little trepidation did you see it in the theater, or did you come to it much later? I came to it a bit later. I, think. Right. I saw it on um, DVD, I think, um, and not way late, but I didn't. I didn't see it in theater. Um, I saw it on opening weekend, and it came out in like Thanksgiving, and, and it was like. And you'd seen the Tarkovsky beforehand. I had seen the Tarkovsky yeah, yeah. film, and like, the, you know, and they did themselves no fe- like. You know, somebody interviewed George Clooney and said, "What's different about this?" And it's like it's not seventeen hours long, you know. <laughs> And so lots of people had knives out, but yeah. also they kind of marketed it like a perfume commercial. And like, <laughs> and it just happened that I saw it in a theater where for some reason they played like 35 minutes of ads beforehand. Oh, good grief. And the audience was ready to riot. Yeah. And then it starts and it's, I love Solaris. I think that its success is primarily as an abstract film mm. of sound and image. It's Cliff yeah. Martinez's. is highest accomplishment ever i think it's yeah. one of the best soundtracks ever oh see made i had no idea cliff for film yeah and um and the the extraordinary effects that he um you know working with james cameron mm. and john lando accomplished were amazing and um and then you have the themes of the tarkovsky and before it, the stanislaw lem yeah. uh novel working through it of you know the and and you see some of the like you know the repetition and yeah and uh 
the regret about love. I mean, I feel like there's echoes with sex lies yeah. and to girlfriend experience to all sorts of, you know, yeah. schizopolis and all mm. all sorts of things through it. And um, Yeah, certainly that um, distance of relationship. And, yeah. yeah. And I think Clooney's great in it. I mean, I, th- I yeah, feel like it's, it's something that completely, like, obliterates that Ocean's I'm, Eleven out of yeah. sight, like, yeah. wink, wink. And yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. I, I was... Very impressed when I saw it, and mm. it stands stands up as its own. People it, fucking hated it. As like they hated thing, it so much. Oh, really? Yeah. Like in the theaters, wow. it was just like because they were expecting a big, you know. Oh yeah, but I guess if you're expecting feel good, like, something around, I think they're. I mean, that was the era of like those Matthew McConaughey, oh, like, yeah, yeah. kind of ghosts of girlfriend past or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. they are a big or maybe like sweet november you know it's yeah, more yeah. like a sweet home alabama this, yeah i mean and i think they were expecting like that in space and you yeah. throw something like that into 2700 theaters at the height of george cooney's career yeah, in, yeah. and thanksgiving weekend and you just watch people turn against it. Like I, I, the theater was packed and i would bet even money that my friend and i were the only ones who even liked that film from what I the grousing that I oh wow heard oh, cool. um, I can't remember what, what yeah. people around me who'd seen it had said um, I know there was at least one or two people who liked mm. it I was a little nervous about it but what I, my take from it was that it was certainly more approachable than the Tarkovsky mm. um, in terms of um, the way it handled the drama and laid out the material but it was very well treated um, stylistically, it was fantastic. Yeah, the, the camera work and the lighting and the music were top notch, and it it did it really did justice to the story. I thought. Um, I had a um, teacher at a film school who did art department, and she hated it because it had white panels. And I was just like, "You oh, gotta yeah. be kidding me!" Her favorite <coughs> film, of course, is Moulin Rouge, because oh. you know, which was like an art department throughout. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, and so I think the. The sting of two thousand of Solaris, excuse me, sent him into Another Oceans spin. Twelve, yeah. <laughs> and, I, yeah. I, and Oceans Twelve. I don't know. It strikes me as one of the most self-hating films ever. In a way, the whole like we're gonna get, mm. we're gonna pretend that this character that Julia Roberts plays looks like it, everybody realizes she looks like Julia Roberts, so she's gonna mm. impersonate Julia Roberts. Robert, it just yeah. it just felt like this. You're gonna make me make this film. I'm gonna make it as dislikable to audiences as possible. possible. Yeah. And I went in primed to love that film. Um, <laughs> and then he makes Bubble, which... Um, which a is... lot of people disliked. I, I just read the tagline. Uh, What's on, the tagline on, of Bubble? IMDb is another Steven Soderbergh experience. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's one of those films. <laughs> it's one of those weird little things that he does that nothing happens with people you don't know. And... I was reading an interview with him about it because I just watched it the other day for the first time. Yeah. And I think nonplussed is probably a good way to describe my reaction. Yeah. Um, it's very, you know, it's it's all people that they discovered in this little town, town. in Ohio yeah. where they have a doll factory. And it's a smallish town. Yeah. Oh, okay. And yeah. eventually it becomes a murder mystery. But that kind of implies uh, urgency or interest that it doesn't really have. Earn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but... I, there are people that love it, and, and I, it is, I really, I quite and, liked it. And I, 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 I got the DVD at home because I liked it enough to buy it. Yeah, um, my, my wife was in the other room, and I put it on. She's like, "Are you watching a documentary?" I'm like, "No, no, <laughs> I'm watching watching Bubble." I, like, I mean, oh, again, okay. there's that cold yeah. sense of distance and, and coolness in the production. Um, mm. Well, and and the thing is, like, I started reading about it. And he started, and he was talking about things like 
oh, I thought it was really interesting to shoot digital off a tripod because it captures that absolute stillness. Because, of course, with film grain, yeah. every frame is slightly different because yeah. of the grain. Yeah. Or is in digital, if a pixel doesn't change, a pixel doesn't change. change. Yeah. And it struck me as a film that was more interested in what happened to a pixel from frame to frame, frame yeah. than the things that actually people who are there's, interested there's in There's some fascinating shooting in, in the most mundane of settings. Like there's, mm. I, was, I mentioned before, there's some, some beautiful shooting of mm. detail in a doll factory um, where the, a couple of the characters work. Um, and it's, yeah. And yeah, you do get to see really how dolls are made. Some fascinating close... Um, footage of that stuff which is you know not necessarily interesting content but it's beautifully <laughs> shot and well I, I find that stuff fascinating um and the story itself was me yeah, i was all right um yeah i mean there's some interesting stuff i mean i you know we talked about his lighting thing and, and he's actually like for the most part goes with a very neutral mm. lighting scheme and then has some key moments to kind of bring it through yeah. so you know he's playing with ideas yeah um the good german which i haven't seen i saw by all accounts that's just again playing with this idea of what if we make a film film with the standards of production schema of casablanca in 2006 with with contemporary actors and it yeah uh, that that played as a kind of i like that was all right um the story was it was okay it was was interesting seeing clooney and that um, role as um, like a more classic film noir role where mm. you've got the where you've got the protagonist who is kind of behind the eight ball a lot of the time. Right, he's getting knocked about and and mm. and trying to and and isn't is kind of seems to be two steps behind the investigation of what's going on. And then eventually, sort of seems to reel the threads in. So it was interesting, but I, it just wasn't it wasn't a gripping story for me. Yeah, and Ocean's Thirteen is one that I watched, and I was just like completely bored by. Yeah, I, by that stage, I'd sort of. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just remember there's like Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn go to yeah. Mexico uh, and yeah. like are like it's fomenting a workers' rebellion. And yeah, it just yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and I suppose actually, like probably. There might have been a switch there because I remember like going to him going to Shea and like doing that whole yeah. Shea experience was this big gamble of his and him I shooting loved, on the red camera. Oh, yeah, on the red red one. Mm. It was um, was it the first major feature shot on the red one? It was close to it. Yeah, I, yeah. I remember was, that coming yeah. out. I saw that uh, at festival. Um, they shot. Uh, I mean, I remember they had ice packs on the camera yeah. because they were trying to keep it cool enough because yeah. it would overheat and yeah. <laughs> things like that. It's, it, there's a coolness. And a Christmas to mm. the shooting in it um, that kind of, to some degree, plays against the kind of the humidity of the jungle that they're traipsing through. But also the iconography of Shea, because yeah. Shea, is, Shea is arguably one, you know, within the top five most iconic yeah, and figures most of the 20th century. Images. Yeah, exactly. Um, like, you know, you instantly see that bloody t-shirt yeah, as I, soon as you say the name. And I've, have you watched that, um, that documentary on the image called Shevolution? No, I haven't. I watched that. I think I've got it at home actually, which talks about how his image was then used in other um, revolutions and then then appropriated and, right, and, and yeah. commercialized. And but yeah, I I really enjoyed that as uh, as someone who knew a l- not a lot about Shea but knew a little bit about it about him and sort of having. Was it later that they did the Motorcycle Diaries or before? I can't remember. I, oh, I can't remember. It was a similar time, but maybe yeah. a little bit before. Um, and yeah, I, I just thought the way that he put that together was fantastic, and, and 
as a biopic, I, I really liked the fact that it didn't sort of gloss this person, mm. but gave a really interesting kind of human look at someone with a set of ideals stuck in these conditions that he's kind of half the time wheezing with his asthma and, and getting kind of sideways looks from the other yeah. soldiers. I, I didn't I didn't take to Shea much on a first feeling, and I, I think it comes back to this kind of interest in process mm. that... Um, Soderbergh has. Soderbergh has a lot of interest yeah. in process. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and it, for something like in Ocean's Eleven, that's fascinating because, you know, it's the process of how, yeah. you know, I mean, most of the first two thirds of that film is this process of how they're going to pull plan, yeah, plan on this planning heist, heist, you know, and then there's this little cheat where they don't show you part of it. Yeah, I mean, I respect Shay because I don't like biopics that act conventionally, and I mm. appreciate it for not being. Mm. a conventional biopic but it feels like it's kind of laying out the process without taking a stance of any kind of what's at stake and it feels in a lot of cases again getting back to this issue peculiarly dispassionate Mm. for something that's literally a matter of life and death yeah and and they are I think I think the you know the issues that Shea brings up about what re- what rebellion and revolution mm. is justified and how far you take yeah. revolution are smart issues to have nuanced opinions on. Yeah. So I don't think that, you know, it's necessary it should be more simplified, but I just came out of it and I'm like, it, yeah, it, it didn't create the space around those issues in a way that I could find a way into them to mm. explore from my own perspective. It just seemed to be documenting it as it happened and then kind of ended but you know I mean I've missed the point on plenty of films so yeah. I missed it on that one yeah but then you look at like so you just saw the girlfriend experience as well yeah. right yeah um, which I found again like um, which I actually saw the um, TV more recent TV series remake that Soderbergh executive produced um, and got um, Lodge Kerrigan keen yeah um, and Amy Simons yeah. to co-direct um, and so, how did the how did the feature compare to the TV series? Because I've seen the feature, but not the TV series. Well, the TV series is newer and is more racy in many respects. Like, there's more more of that kind of the sexual experience sort of stuff happening. Yeah, um, and I guess it plays over a longer time. And then, so they go into some of the relationships a little more, but. Um, the film is primarily about Sasha Gray's character. Um, who, right. you know, I think had come from a porn background, maybe. Yeah, she's um, a porn actress, yeah. Um, and so it's quite interesting having her in a role where she's somewhat portraying uh, a character in that space, but then not actually kind of um, put in that space physically a lot in the film, which is really interesting. But also yeah. it's some really interesting um, investigations, of, like self-investigation about identity and why why am I doing this? What's the... Um, what what does sex mean? How do you have a relationship in a in a uh, in a space of lots of false relationships, whether those are sexual or not? You know. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, and, and in some ways, this it's actually the, almost literally is magic, Mike. In some ways. Yeah, and and um, because, because of the, there's yeah. such an obsession with um, transactionality. Yeah, transactionality. Yeah. Um, they they directly broach the whole physical appearance thing. You wouldn't be in this job if you didn't mm. if you weren't great looking. And again, he he does that thing that's uh, that he did a, a lot maybe was reminiscent of the line where he's cutting 
timelines back and forth. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, there's various experiences unfolding at various, um, and they're kind of interweaved, and you're never quite sure where you're at mm. in the timeline. So you know that this, an experience has happened or is going to happen, and there's another experience in another character, so there's people in a relationship, and that relationship is breaking down. And yeah. Then, they're doing other things separately and you're not quite sure whether this is pre or post um, and it becomes a little more clear towards the end and then there's this a couple of characters she's kind of meeting with who you're not sure whether they're clients or not and then one of them turns out to be a reporter who is yeah. doing a profile piece on her um, and that seems to be earlier than some of the other stuff but it kind of wraps the film um, yeah it's really interesting yeah I I, 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 I I really did quite enjoy it I just saw it the once and I again it's um as with as with a few of the films from this period, it was a film that I really found a hard time getting my head mm. into, and um, it was better yeah. than I expected. Actually, yeah. I, like I'd sort of put off watching it for a while, and then because we were doing this, I thought oh, I'd better get around to get it. Around to it. Yeah, 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 kind of had it had it yeah. had it there waiting for a better part of a year or so. Yeah, I mean, looking back <clears> at this period for me, it's like it's kind of tentpoled by Solaris on one side, and then the informant on the other side, mm. which was. Um, the first film of his in seven years that I unambiguously really Love, enjoyed yeah. and I've revisited and I could probably revisit multiple times. And I find that like my favorite Soderbergh's have a pretty great replayability standard, you know, when you look at something like Out of Sight or um, Contagion or The Limey mm. or Solaris and certainly with The Informant where it just so... Um, chock full of gags and one of my favorite Matt Damon mm. performances and because it's such a complicated little tale that gets spun over the course of it mm. um, you kind of lose your bearings pretty quick um, and so even if you have seen the film when you go back to it there's a bit of like wait how does this all come out because is he playing these guys against these guys yeah, and what's yeah. how does the scam actually work and you forget everybody who's in it you know the all these mm. you know the comedians yeah, every, every and, but yeah. part is someone amazing <laughs> yeah yeah and and yeah and so and i i try, so i've sort of divided this to phase four and phase five because somewhere in this shay girlfriend experience informant thing in, in that production schedule, I don't know where, he made his initial announcement that he was going to retire, retire yeah. and <clears throat> retire from feature filmmaking. And apparently he's been painting. I've never seen his paintings. Um, and he's always doing shit, you know. He's, yeah. he's got his own liquor importing business with Singani 63. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's some, something they drank on Shea that they really liked, and so he imports right. it into the States. I've still never tried it. I'm really curious. And um, when was Behind the Candelabra? Well, Behind the Candelabra was actually his last one. So, um, of of features before his retirement, and it was kind so of like it was on the edge of features. Cause well, it was, like it was technically a yeah, a Showtime TV, TV movie. So, Showtime. like, so he did, and everything is going fine, which is the second Spalding Gray film, which I also oh, yeah. haven't seen. And then he busted out like five films in in three years. He did Contagion. Haywire, Magic Mike, Side Effects, <laughs> and Behind the Candelabra. He was basically and it was, giving them all out. Well, no, it's just this joke. Because actually, like, I mean, one of the 
things is, if you look back, he was going to do two more films. And I think this may have been even pre-Contagion. Mm-hmm. He was going to do Liberace with Michael Douglas, which yep. became Behind the Candelabra. And he was going to do The Man from U.N.C.L.E. with George Clooney. Oh, yes. But and, and then that yeah, never happened for budget reasons. reasons. Moneyball was going to happen. He was going to do Moneyball, and he had a big falling out with the studio yeah. because he wanted to like have an animated Bill James, who's the guy who came with the yeah. baseball abstract, yeah. describing all these crazy statistics and... Amy Pascal's like, I don't know if we can say, spend $80 million on an animated fat guy talking about sabermetrics. Yeah. <laughs> and so threw that to the side. He was going to do a Cleopatra 3D musical with songs oh, by Guided yes. by Voices. Oh, my goodness. With Catherine Zeta-Jones starring. <laughs> like, you know, all these projects. And then like, and then stuff like, like Magic Mike just fell on his lap, you know? Mm. And that was one he's like, um, oh, um, God, I have to yes. do this. Magic yeah. Mike follows perfectly from the Girlfriend Experience, actually, in terms of... Mm. They both hit super heavy on the global financial crisis yeah. and like ridiculously over the top heavy. The girlfriend experiences everybody she's talking to, all of her clients who are obscenely rich people, uh, talking about the financial downturn, who are talking about losing money, right, talking yeah. about what she should do with her money. That's every, every everybody is talking about. The That's right. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And then it slowly fades out into the final third, where everyone kind of pretty much stops talking about that and is all talking about relationship and identity. Right. Yeah. Whereas Magic Mike, I feel like, just even drives harder in yeah. the financial relationship. Well, that was one of the things I kind of really yeah. liked about it was that um, Channing Tatum's character was stuck in a place and was trying to negotiate the basics of you know just trying to get a loan to get a business going, couldn't do it, um, yeah. and then basically had to find a, another way to get his money. Um, but th- this is where be, the divide be. <laughs> between Magic Mike and Magic Mike XXL comes in. Because I... Um, Which is... They're super different films. They're so different. And I, I really think, like, I prefer Magic Mike XXL because I, um, I saw Magic Mike and I'm like, I feel like this film should have been fun. And there were people having fun with it. And, you know, obviously it brought about the reconnaissance and Joe Manganiello's in it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it's, it's actually a really interesting compare and contrast in, uh, if you wanted to study auteur theory, because Magic Mike and Magic Mike XXL, it's like Soderbergh shot and edited both of those, mm. but different director. Yeah. And I don't know how much that affects things. I oh, they, um, they, they are so different. Yeah, and like, I don't know how the much same group of characters. The concept, but yeah. The, the focus of the film is completely different, and the tone, like <laughs> Magic Mike, has that that coldness, that sort of desperation, mm. and that sort of uh, deconstruction of the um, of the economy at the time, and yeah. how that's affecting everybody in negative ways, and it's putting all this kind of this quite kind of tense. Tense desperation around it. everything, yeah. around all the proceedings, and so that sort of adds a layer of sort of menace to everything. Whereas Magic Mike XXL is just like a celebration. It's so bizarre. It's so it, uplifting. It's, it's so fascinating what the Soderbergh movies are that connect and don't, right? Yeah. Because Magic Mike was huge. Yeah. Like, and you know, now there's a Broadway play or yeah. out Vegas or I'm not sure where, but you know, there's a whole Magic Mike stage show that you can go to be prepared for uh, yeah. audience interaction <laughs> uh, and make, make your choices accordingly. But, um, you know, that was huge. But Haywire, which, um, you know, had an all-star which, cast. Which I loved. And amazing well, action. Yeah, yes, yes. Although it was fronted by Gina Carano, who, who was somewhat, well, I mean... She's wooden. Yeah, <laughs> there, but, but if, you, if, you, if she was biggish at the time in the sports arena, like in the um, MMA, but that was about it. She wasn't sort of known outside of that. Sure, but she's kicking like... 
dozens of famous people's asses, isn't yeah. she? Yeah. Like, isn't it just a nun? Like, I, I've watched her I, I love that, film. that for a few I love years. It. And, I, and I actually think she's all right. I don't it, think she's terrible at all. Right. It's really... Like, I, I just rewatched it um, yeah. maybe a month or two back. Um, and I sort of... I got more from it this time. No, I got, I got different things from it. There's not much to get from it, is there? It's just pretty much like a kind of linear revenge film of like with uh, intense yeah, action yeah, sequences. Yeah, it's a portrayal. Right? Um, what I because there's Ewan McGregor. Yeah, Ewan McGregor is, is the kind of the the employer, the their contractors to um, security contractors to governments and what have you. Um, and there's Michael Douglas as the um, as the government guy at the top. Yeah. Um, there's Michael Fassbender as the dicey guy that she kicks his ass. There's Channing Tatum. Yep, there's Channing Antonio Tatum, Banderas. Banderas yep. Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton. Yep, Bill you Paxton's know, her dad. Michael Angenaro. Like, there's a whole like. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a, a Matthew Kasovitz, You know. But um, yeah. It, I mean, in some ways it's linear. But what I like about it is that it plays against the genre type of that kind of film. Like right. it's really stripped back it's like an indie version of a big action film so those genre films are usually over the mm. top they're stylized they're um they're often slick they got you know they got highly choreographed um action set pieces and um fight sequences and this is not unchoreographed but it's watching it you feel like everything that happens every stunt that happens in that film she could probably do right they're not so over the top that they're undoable, but they're still quite impressive because they have a sense of reality and and, and um, immediacy to them in the way mm. that they're shot. And, and they're all like, grounded quite in the physicality of that space. Like there's yeah. there's a hotel room yeah. fight, and then yep. there's like that beach fight later, and they yeah. all kind of feel like we just haven't designed a fight, and now we'll do it in whatever space we happen to be in. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's also like even from a sound perspective, like that last fight on the beach. There's no music or anything, no, is no. there? Just and, but, really stark. But the funny thing is, is that um, that I noticed more this time round, which I didn't really notice the first couple of times, was that the score is done by the same. And I can't remember who it is offhand now. The same person so who did um, the Oceans films. Oh, David Holmes. Yeah, David yeah. Holmes scored scored um, Haywire. He did Out of Sight as well. Which is, except that Haywire is such the opposite <laughs> of um, of the Oceans films and all that kind of yeah. thing. Like you've got the crime thrill elements, but it's the completely stripped back indie version of yeah. something like that, um, or a more action based version of that. But then mm. you've got parts of the score which are just full-on ocean-style score against um, action that is so not. <laughs> um, I think he tried a lot with that because he shot Haywire and there's some fantastic cam- and there's some fantastic mm. camera work on that as well. Like there's bits where she's like climbing down the side of the building and he's shooting through the gap and um, uh, downpipe, and then sort of pivots the camera around as she comes. Right. Yeah, it's some really nice, just small. God, I want to watch Haywire again now. I liked yeah. it okay the first time. Um, but it was kind of it came here as damaged goods because oh, yeah. it never got a theatrical release in yeah. New Zealand, and um, I was like, and I was hanging out for it. I'm like, certainly it's going to get one. It's got 17 it's actors that we all you know, know in it. Yeah, yeah. It's Soderbergh. How can it not? And yeah. yet, yeah. presaging side effects, which had the same treatment, although side effects wasn't yeah. nearly as good. Um, but we skipped over what's my favorite um, Soderbergh film of this feature, and bar one actor would actually be in contention for my favorite Soderbergh film period which is contagion oh right yes yeah and so you have to have a higher tolerance for jude law um than i do <laughs> to consider it your favorite sort of big film of all time because boy is his kind of like um 
what would you describe him as? Like he's some kind of internet like reporter or something, oh, yeah. trying to get the real scoop and stuff. Yeah, and some blogger. Yeah, it's and it's such a um, you know, it's something that you can tell has been through the editing room a lot, and for the most part, it's come out really strong. Uh, for that work, you know, Matt mm. Damon's incredible in it mm. as a dad whose um, child is there. Jennifer L.A., that was the yep. first film that I really took note of her, and I know you're yeah. a big fan from, yeah. from Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, and all these other things. Um, and Dimitri Martin's her partner in it. Yeah. And, um, you know, it just, um, and the Cliff Martinez score is so intense yeah. and moving, and it's just such a. And it just, it, I, I think also because it relates to something so primal and believable in this yeah. global thing, and especially the ultimate reveal yeah, of where all this contagion stems from. Because where did that, um, when was it, what was the year that came out? Because we had those. 2011. Because we had, like, um, we had SARS, we had bird flu, we had all these massive Yeah, yeah, SARS was 2004, scares. yeah. Um, we had but, yeah. massive epidemic scares coming up to that. Yeah. Although I, I must admit, when I saw it, I just couldn't help thinking of Outbreak. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen Outbreak, which might have helped, and I've never seen um, the first first round of Ebola. Isn't there like the China syndrome or something? Is uh, that probably. there's also the Ebola syndrome, which I think is a Hong Kong uh, category and three. Which the Patriot, uh, the Patriot, Steve Scal, direct video. Oh, I thought you were talking about <laughs> yeah, the Mel no, Gibson no, film. No, no. Um, no, even better. <laughs> got, I forgot Kate Winslet was in it. Marianne Cotillard, oh, yes. Lawrence Fishburne, Brian Cranston. I mean, it was just yes. Mm. And and the cast just burns on all cylinders. But yeah. my personal contagion story, this is makes it sound more exciting than it is. I saw a double feature in Houston, Texas when I was traveling there and I went to the theater and I was super excited to see Drive and Contagion oh, showing yeah. it all. And as we've noted, I hadn't had a great run with Soderbergh. Yeah. And um, but I was super excited to see Drive. I'm like, oh I can double feature them. And I was and I got to the end of the day, I'm like, wow. Drive isn't even the best film I've seen scored by Cliff Martinez today. today. Yeah. <laughs> um, I grew to like Drive more in a secondary viewing. Yeah, I think I think his score there is something special, and I think mm. and I think Soderbergh, because there are so many different ways to look at this sort of global outbreak, and because he has mm. this analytic quality, it really suits him that he doesn't get. To, uh, there's a little cheesy bit with this like U2 song with yeah. the kid and stuff, and that's not ideal. But you know he doesn't get <laughs> he doesn't get too worked up in the in like the, the chest rending yeah. yeah. like kind of it's my kid you know yeah. sort of thing that you yeah. get in a lot of these disease films, and you know <laughs> a lot of a lot of it's so you know the 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 very precise work that Jennifer Ellie in specific mm. does yeah. as the scientist who eventually finds the vaccine through the hardest of ways Um, and being able to scale up to this sort of worldview and work your way Mm. down through various scientists and various events is is remarkable and and I think to me that was one of the things that I feel most acutely in the loss of Soderbergh as a feature filmmaker Mm. is the guy who could make these sort of big scale films that had an interest that weren't just a branded entertainment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what's interesting about um, Logan Lucky, which is his comeback, which he's you know mm. has Channing Tatum and da- Daniel Craig, and it's oh, right. it's a heist film shot at some NASCAR race. Oh, and, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's sixteen other people that you'd know in it. Um, and so it's it seems probably closer to Ocean's Eleven than Contagion in terms yeah. of tone, but it does seem 
of a piece with what Soderbergh's been demonstrated to excel at. Yeah. So have you caught up with any of the Nick? Um, I watched the first half of it and then sort of fell off it like I have with a lot of Like TV. the first season or the first half of the se- season? First half of the first season, I think. I feel really guilty because, I, I mean, Soder- two seasons of a Soderbergh-directed TV Vision, show yeah. seems like it should be my thing, but I do have a squeamish spot for surgical footage. Oh, right. And I understand that there's no shortage no, of that. yeah. It's pretty much in there. <laughs> yeah, pretty much that's what the but, thing's well, about. Yeah. I mean, Clive Owen is pretty reasonable, and and um, I mean, it's a fascinating sort of time in history, and around the, the sort of the, the earlier developments in surgery, it's pretty, yeah. pretty interesting. Um, and having read a little bit about that time from when I worked at the med school um, library, um, in the early 2000s um, the development of like we just sort of take for granted now that you know, medicine's this evidence based branch of science has been around for a long time except that you know back in the the turn of the uh, 18th to 19th oh, sorry 19th to 20th century um, it was, really was uh, untested field to a large right, yeah. degree where people were sort of sceptical you had a lot of knowledge then it was just basically well we'll particularly like in the 1800 stuff, we've just got to get bodies and cut them open mm. and see what actually happens. They're taking what they can to learn, and there's people going off the like, so they had the, um, the African-American doctor who um, had studied in France, and people are like, and right. they're like, well, how do we know we can trust this guy? And he's come from a place where his race hasn't sort of counted against him, but now no one no, sort of wants to see yeah, the black yeah. guy, you know. Yeah, so it's a fascinating show. So why'd you bail Very well, it? mate. What's that? Why'd you bail on it? I just find TV a really big commitment. <laughs> I find like 10, 20 hours of show, and I'm already watching a, a number of shows, um, some of which are probably not as good, but um, but, sure, they're, yeah. but they're like easy entertainment and stuff that I'm doing with my yeah. um, wife, and, and, and we're just kind of doing that together, that I'm like, okay. am I going to commit to 12 hours or 24 hours of this um, when I have a whole stack of movies that I actually want to watch? No, I, I I totally hear you, and there was some comment that somebody made today about like um, the new Twin Peaks that's coming out, yeah. and how David Lynch has made something like twenty seven hours of film all up, and the new Twin Peaks series is twenty one hours in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, and um, and I don't really know what to make of that, and like yeah. the way that interest in a creative vision scales over that period of time, and and I I've, I've got the original series of Twin Peaks sitting here, and I as with almost everybody who was around at the time, watched the first season and then drifted off in the second season. season. And I'm watching people who are going back now and doing their due diligence to get through all, you know, 21 hours of the original Twin Peaks, you know, going like, oh my God, is the second season ever going to get any better? Yeah. You know? And I mean, we'll see what um, this new season has to avail us. And I certainly have high hopes. Yeah. But, you know, 20 hours of the Nick versus you know Soderbergh's last 10 features even if I didn't love a lot of them it's like you know with him in particular yeah. there's so many different visions and yeah. if TV is the future of our auteurs mm. which I sometimes you know seems to be the increasing trend is that you know we'll give the this it's, guy a TV it's, series it's with, his, with his money at the moment you know it's well 
It's where there's money for yeah. original visions, Legends, you know, yeah. because obviously there's money to make Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, like Soderbergh, like, I'm, you know, he's was an executive producer on Red Oaks. He's an executive producer on Godless, which I think is Scott Frank, who uh, wrote Out of Sight. Oh, yeah. Um, and, yeah, you know, and he's well. got this thing at uh, Showtime called Mosaic, which is the other thing that he's shooting, which has like Sharon Stone, Garrett Hedlund, oh. Paul Rubens, Bo Bridges, and it's like, it's billed as an interactive movie, and it's gonna, but it's gonna go to air on TV. So, oh, what that means, don't know. That's that's slated for 2018 at the moment. So he's playing um, Logan Lucky. Supposedly he's distribu- I think he's distributing it directly to theaters oh, okay. without a studio because okay. he's talking about like I have this new distribution strategy, yeah. and so it's like. I think he's trying to think of like how do I make the economics of this work because yeah. it's so expensive to market a movie. Yeah. But if you can cast, you know, fifteen name actors and the week it comes out, have them all, you know, go to their social media feeds and be like, "Hey, come see this," you know. Yeah. And it, with Ocean's Eight, he's um, he's a, he's producing it. He's not directing it. Yeah. But you know, he's got. Um, uh, Kim Kardashian and the Jenners and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. and Rihanna's in it, and then he's also got like Kate Blanchett and Anne Hathaway and Sandra Bullock and Dakota <laughs> Fanning. Yeah, Kitty Holmes. So you, it's like, if that film doesn't like blow things open opening weekend. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, to be fair, it, maybe it just becomes the next Fire Festival. Yeah, but <laughs> um, that'll be a quickly dated reference, but uh, <laughs> one that hopefully has cachet for the moment. And so, yeah, there's there's still this playing around of business yeah. structures. Um, but the last thing I was going to get to is that, like, there's also just this playing around with stuff. And with his um, liquor label, he's done these events and he'll do these um, cuts of things. Like, he did a, m- a mashup of Crisscross and The Underneath, which was mm. the remake that he did of it. And he did this split screen of it where he'd do scenes from each and then put them at different sizes on it. And he's done a similar thing with... Ipcrest's file, Billion Dollar Brain and Funeral in Berlin, and mashing them up into a thing. And he's done a couple other cuts for his blog where he cut together Alfred Hitchcock and Gus Van Sant's Psycho. Yeah. He did a recut of 2001, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Black yeah, and White. Yeah, did Raiders of the Lost Ark and Black and White. And did you yeah. do it? Did you, did you remove some of the sound as well? I think he might have like, stripped out, something. Yeah, stripped something back from it. And uh, he, he sends a comment on one of these, which is like, you always learn something from making something, you know? Mm. Um, he did a music video for a group called DC, DTCV, I think, which almost nobody's ever heard of. Obviously, he didn't need to do mm. for the money. I think I think Magic Mike, if nothing else, has like, set him up for life. Yeah. But it's just that he loves making things and he loves learning from and applying those things. Mm. And, and sometimes that leads to restlessness. I mean, there's in that phase four, he would say a lot in interviews that he never wanted to do a shot reverse shot again because he was so bored of like being like oh now i put the camera here and they say they're on and now i put the camera here and i know what's going to happen yeah for the next half hour and it's going to be really dull and how do i yeah get around getting this really conventional sheet yeah. scene that i've now shot mm. dozens of times and that restlessness can lead to creative invention yeah, yeah uh, and, but also being stuck in a thing where you're delivering something more formulaic yeah yeah frustration but supposedly I mean for somebody who is retired to have 
you know, done 20 hours of TV on the <laughs> yeah. net between, and that. And he described it as boot camp because apparently Logan Lucky was shot quite quickly mm. and under a lot of pressure because a lot of it was shot at this actual race right event. Then. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. While the event oh, was Oh, that's going, right. Yeah, yeah no, it, I had it, heard about it, that. It, yeah. It's not the Indy 500, but it's but, something like yeah. that where it's like, you know, you've got a day. This is going on. Yeah. You're trying to do it while this real thing's happening. Yeah. Not unlike the boxing event in um, yeah. uh, Ocean's Eleven, but like, you know, a lot bigger scale than that and yeah. um uh and he said he couldn't have done it without like what he described as the crossfit training of uh yeah, yeah. the nick of turning around that much tv in that much time yeah so like looking back over just a massive of amount of work and stuff like, where would you like if somebody's like oh, i haven't really paid attention to soderberg where would you send them to start i i mean tempted to send them to start at um at Six Lies, hmm. just as a starting point of interest. But I, th- I think you're right. I think he does so many different things that you'd want to cherry pick stuff that sort of crosses the board quite a bit. Like yeah. some of the bigger, more conventional Hollywood stuff that he has puts his flair on. Yeah. Maybe some of the stuff that you think didn't work so well as well. Um, I mean, he's done a lot of kind of noirish heist stuff, so obviously you'd want to probably the first Oceans film so top of the list just because that is so singular yeah um, and the limey is just yeah that I mean that's you're really taken by that yeah yeah, yeah. anybody like because I love genre film I love um, I love yeah. revenge flicks I love action flicks it's because it has Ken Loach movie in it doesn't yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it cuts bits from a Ken Loach film that Terrence Stamp was in oh my gosh <laughs> poor cow <laughs> and then but, but because he then just like cuts this very artistic almost art house sensibility and experimental film sensibility into a genre film. It's so good. Yeah. Solaris. Um, yeah. Obviously. Um, I would I would put um, the Shea films in there for me as well. And the Girlfriend Experience. I actually haven't just seen that, um, pair that with Magic Mike as a sort of an investigation of those two things. And then I would say watch Magic Mike XXL just to, like you say, see the difference between those two films that he is intimately involved in both of them. But they're so different. Like, yeah. same set of characters and the tone is just worlds apart. We kind of glossed over it, but what did you think of Traffic? I haven't seen Traffic. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's, I must um, be one of the few people. That oh, hasn't. man. Uh, yeah, I, um, I probably would have made you watch that. Um, because it is, um, it is such a, um, I think, turning point film for him in a lot of ways because it's you know one of the first ones that he got, that he he got shot and it's this level of ambition of like mm. working with these three different settings where he's time you know using yeah. three different color timings using this sort of re- his first real all-star cast you know that kind of probably warmed him up for Ocean's Eleven yeah. in that sense it's the film he earned his Oscar for um, and it's a film that has a lot of you know hashtag problematics today about yeah. it but I still think has some great sequences and moments and, and, and cap has a real sense of how to capture mm. just these. Um, I, I think he works with a lot of different actors and, yeah. you know, there's actors that are very precise and like mm. Benicio del Toro is a, is a big key player in traffic and he's yeah. someone famously that like every scene he will do differently. Or every, every take, take he'll, he'll do differently. differently. Yeah. So, you know, it's just like there's no point in even like trying to give him marks yeah, yeah. you know um and so 
uh, where somebody like Catherine Zeta-Jones is much more precise, precise. and controlled yeah. in her energy. And there's this mm. bit where Don Cheadle's in the um, truck outside her mansion while her husband's arrested on drug charges. Mm. And, and he's, you know, they're monitoring and they're not supposed to be there, but she winds up bringing out lemonade for him and, yeah, yeah. and stuff. And, and, there's, and so it's this kind of um, as contagion as like prank applying this analytic to uh, an epidemic. Yeah. It's him applying an analytic to um, the drug epidemic yeah. and and how you deal with this problem that's so multivariate. And, mm. um, and it doesn't um, necessarily, I think, do as good of a job as Contagion of shying away from some of these kind of bigger, more crowd-pleasing emotional yeah, yeah. moments. But it still packs into its two and a half hours something that's quite still satisfying as a mm. roundup to all of that well I'll, I'll have to have to fix that gap mm. any that you would um put in there is um oh, i think i mean my top five are solaris limey schizopolis out of sight and contagion i think oh, yeah. um and I, I depending on the day i'd put them in almost any order wow. within those um i mean the informant and oceans 11 are close behind and then i think yeah. there's a little bit of a gap um, I still don't think he's made his masterpiece. You know, look, yeah. that was the thing that surprised me because I consider Soderbergh one of my favorite directors. But like, if you ask me like about Scorsese, yeah, um, I'd be like, oh my god, he's made several masterpieces. Pieces, yeah. You know, and I'd, you know, from The Age of Innocence to Silence, yeah, um, to Taxi, Taxi Driver Barbara. to yeah. Casino, yeah. you know, um, and um, and similarly for other. Direct, you know, Woody Allen, who's somebody I don't think is nearly as good of a director, but he made Manhattan, mm. and you know, and I think that's and and Wes Anderson for that matter. I think you know, um, Grand Budapest Hotel. I think actually is the point where he reached the pinnacle of what he His does, sensibilities, at least yeah. for the moment. You know, whereas is there there's there's a lot of four and a half star films, but there's no. I'm not sure there's a five star film. I'm tempted to go with that with the limey. I just right, yeah, yeah. It, it is. It's really yeah. I mean, and it's a fantastic. And Shazopolis. Yeah, I mean, there's. It's difficult in ways, but it's just so singular. Yeah, but they, it, when they, I go to build, if I were to go build my list of the top twenty-five films of all yeah, time, yeah, you know, and I look at something like these films against Blue Velvet, yeah, yeah, you know. I, I just don't see it quite... Yeah, quite reaching that. Or, or yeah. Three Colors Blue, or um, or Adaptation, even. Um, or Punch Drunk Love. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I mean, those are obviously personal choices, and yeah. different people have different personal choices. And I don't know if the message of that is that there's something <laughs> that he still needs to put on the table well, to I'm reach that, <laughs> or that to have, you know, to have this many fantastic... And I, I do think a lot of these films are fantastic, and to have that many over this you know stage of a career and to be you know indirectly responsible um in bringing i i mean i actually think michael clayton is arguably a better film than any of these i think it's a masterpiece it is i caught up with that a couple of years ago it is fantastic yeah yeah and i was surprised yeah. yeah so um i'll be really interested to see what he's up to now that he's back in the ring yeah and i hope that the time off has given him 
a bit of fresh air to yeah, yeah. Uh, um, approach things with a new light, and um, we'll all find out in a couple months. But yeah. um, I might catch up. I, I might Logan catch Lucky, up with a few of these again. Um, I'm kind of interested in what Ocean's Eight does with its kind of bizarrely pop cultural cast. <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll find out. Cool. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. And, Hopefully, and, you'll uh, dive into some Soderberg soon as well. Yeah, and if you like this as an idea for these things, let us know. And if you don't, well, let us know as well. Yeah. Um, and until next time, it's Doug. It's Jacob. It's Best Worst Podcast. Podcast. Peace.